I want to be Beady Wolf when I grow up. Problem is, I'm already older than Beady is, so I think I've missed my chance. She is an amazing creator and technologist who has tried to recreate what we think of the physical album to go with modern music. She's done some amazing things, has been celebrated by the V&A, uh, Barbican, all sorts of great folks. You'll understand her story as she has taken apart what we think of as the album and created physical and experiences that go with that modern music. You may have seen her on stages. She'll be speaking at South by Southwest in the virtual South by coming up in March. Please enjoy Beatty and um, stay tuned for the rest of this episode. Um, Beatty, I really appreciate having met you and Nick and all the great adventures I've seen you guys having just in the past couple of years. As we kind of wind our way into the conversation, what is your current work in the world? What are you doing now? Well, I mean, now, as you mentioned, it's November 2020. Um, we're still in the middle of uh, a very surreal year and lockdown and everything sort of hitting, you know, politically, environmentally, socially, societally, personally. Um, and so, you know, with that kind of as a backdrop, um, the two main projects I've been working on, you know, the first is a continuation of my environmental protest piece from Green to Red, uh, which will be out at the London Design Biennale next year. Uh, and the other one is a project that's actually kind of specific to the context of these times. Uh, it was born out of lockdown and it's called Postcards for Democracy. Uh, and it's something I've been working on with Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. So those are, you know, those are the two main things that are keeping me busy right now. For most creative people, I know that they have sort of a set of areas that they work in and then sometimes dabble in other spaces. And for the time I've known you, you you are incredibly diverse in the areas in which you work. Uh, I think I met you right after you had put out the album that was the um, RFID cards. The deck of um, cards, yeah. The deck of cards where you're rethinking the album. And so I tend to think of 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 my joy in meeting you was the fact that you were rethinking the physical space of the digital content. And since then you've done hordes of other things. And before that you've done hordes of other things. So I feel we could talk for hours just on the realm of work that you touch, but can I get you to back up into your starting spot when you were getting started as a young person, were you, uh, a creator then, a performer, singer, songwriter early, had nothing to do with that. What was your early starting point in all this? Well, it's funny because actually the the early starting point almost feels like, um, well, firstly, it informed everything that I've done, but it feels as if I'm still that kid who is trying to find a tangible, you know, ceremonial experience around music, you know, which I had as a kid with my parents' record collection, um, you know, stumbling upon that when I was 
sort of seven or eight. And at that point, I'd I'd already started writing songs. Like I was very, um, you know, I was very sort of in love with storytelling as a as a g- general kind of medium. And then realizing realizing I could put these stories to music, that just felt like uh, that moment that made sense to me. So from that point, you know, again, around seven or eight, I was, you know, writing songs, but then having kind of encountered um, these musical books, which was how I saw them, and opening them up and entering into the worlds of these albums and this tangible art form and this ceremony and this story that you were kind of being, you know, taken on. Um, that was so captivating for me. And I spent most of my childhood imagining, you know, well, what worlds am I going to create for my albums? What are they going to look like? What are they going to feel like? You know, um, where can I take people? And by the time I grew up, everything that I loved, that whole physical listening music experience had been replaced by the digital one. And it was like we'd gone from one to the other so quickly, we hadn't really figured out how to combine the best of both worlds. And I felt like, you know, we, we'd sort of really missed a trick in figuring out what we could still preserve, but also where we could innovate. So um, in some ways, you know, my, my childhood creative um, sense or self uh, is still really very much alive in in everything that I do because I'm essentially trying to reimagine a vinyl experience, but for today. Um, and I just happen to use technology often as a as a sort of invisible facilitator to create, ironically, a more tangible, ceremonial, story led, immersive experience. You know, for for music, which is otherwise floating around in this intangible sphere. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South London. Um, so I was, you know, I had a, a American father, British mother, um, and, you know, my parents um, split up when I was a baby. So I really grew up with my mom and my brother in um, Sands End. What was on the turntable? Abbey Road. <laughs> No, I mean, that's, you know, that is the one that just really imprinted. And it's not that that was the only one. Um, But, you know, when I recently did or more recently did this um, album experience, Raw Space, which was this kind of anti-stream from the quietest room on earth, that was the most realized version of this vision of recreating the feeling I had as a seven-year-old opening up Abbey Road and just feeling as if, you know, the lyrics, the artwork, everything was just coming to life around you um, as this sort of perfect uh, stage for the music, you know, before you even put the needle on the record. Um, But so Abbey Road was in there, but actually it was very eclectic because my mum, unbeknownst to me and my brother, had done all this stuff in punk rock you know, this documentary and this kind of definitive book on the British scene in 1977. And for some reason, she, you know, we never knew about that. So we grew up, grew up with her as a, as a therapist and a writer. Um, but we didn't know about the music side of that. So, you know, she'd have a lot of Sex Pistols records or, you know, The Damned or The Who. Um, and then it ranged from that through to, you know, some of my dad's stuff, which again, even though, they weren't together, you know, that was obviously a part of our childhood. 
Um, and that was more Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack, you know, these great jazz records. So I think from a very young age, I just remember, um, yeah, just the, that kind of wonderful thing of chancing on something that was just so electrifying. Um, and, you know, thank God my, yeah, my parents had pretty good, good taste, I guess. Makes you think almost of, of uh, and we've had several guests on who their parents' record collection, or in some cases older siblings, was some of what got them intrigued. And you think about now in a household that you really don't see mom or dad's record collection or even their CD collection because it's sitting on their computer and in their smartphone. And so the, the sort of intergenerational listening or archiving might be a really interesting gap or lack of an engagement. I don't know. Because um, it, it, it's interesting how people understand or don't understand the sort of creative meanderings of their parents. And it sounds like you had an opportunity, but an indirect one, to see your mom's meanderings professionally, but through the archive of her, her record collection. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's something that I never even put together until I was in my 20s, you know. So actually, I only found out about her punk stuff through a, a music journalist editor, um, Craig Marks, who had, you know, got a hold of my mom's book and film and was going to interview me for, it was the first um, album I came out with, which was a theatre for the palm of the hand, a way of turning the phone into this kind of 80s viewmaster. And he was interviewing me for that. And I remember meeting for a cup of tea or something in New York. And he's like, oh, you're, you know, your mom's punk stuff is just amazing. And I, I had no idea about it. So, you know, that it was sort of uncovering, um, uncovering this whole other, you know, side of her, but also then going back to some of the things we had in the house and, and sort of thinking about them with, you know, suddenly being able to piece it together. Um, and, and similarly with my dad, you know, my, my dad's a rare bookseller. And so, um, you know, he always had these rare books, uh, you know, Darwin, Galileo, um, Copernicus, Ptolemy. He had them in his flat because he couldn't afford a shop. And I remember being so terrified to handle them or touch them, but, you know, w wanting to as a kid. Um, and he was like, no, these are these were made to last. You know, you can look through these as long as you're careful. And um, that also imprinted on me this idea that something could be a an art form, but also a, a sort of vehicle of knowledge, you know, and, and a portal in time. Um, but with him as well, I grew up with him as a as a rare bookseller, and it wasn't until I was you know sixteen and in the car, uh, listening to Sympathy for the Devil with him, you know, it was on the radio. And I was turning it up and he was turning it down. And, and I was thinking, oh, he doesn't <laughs> like this music. He likes, you know, his jazz and classical and he doesn't understand it. And, um, and at the end of the song, Under His Breath, he goes, you know, there is a line in this song about me. And I just remember thinking, who, the, who is this person what? sitting yeah. next to me? And... You know, so both my mom and my dad had a had a very interesting, um, you know, interesting past uh, with you know my mom and the punk stuff and my dad and the, and the beat culture, but they uh, I don't know they never really you know they went on and did other things they were very much their own people 
and they were very independent. And I think they never romanticized any of that stuff. So they never ended up really talking about it. Um, so it's Do they support you heading into creative direction? So is there voices from them encouraging you to be creative because or despite their past? You know, yes. Yeah, yes and no. I think um, I think that's always a, a hard one to answer because, um, you know, I, uh, being a musician, obviously a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, people would worry, you know, you're n- not going to you know, make any money and all, all that stuff, which is a reality. You know, let's face it. Um, and I think both my mom and my dad had, had knew what it was like to have very little um, and knew what it was like to, yeah, also to be very creative, but, um, you know, sometimes that wouldn't work out. So I think, um, you know, my mom was definitely very supportive. Um, my dad, I think was, yeah, he was worried, you know, he was really worried it, it was gonna be very difficult and, um, you know, he tried to get me to consider other careers and, and that was actually part of, that was almost part of knowing as well that, you know, what I wanted to do was really, it was really bigger than just, oh, I want to go and, you know, sing on stage or whatever. It was really this sense of a purpose and a mission. And, and I didn't know exactly what it was or how it was going to unfold, but I knew that that was why I was here in some ways. Um, and so having those kind of discussions and me having to be really, you know, crystal clear that I was going to do it regardless. Um, that I think was actually very, very ultimately positive because it made me more resolute. You know, I think sometimes if you have it being, you have it too easy, or if you have, you know, people saying, wow, yeah, you're amazing. You know, your parents usually, um, that complacency can be quite, um, it's often, in my opinion, the kind of greatest enemy of, of creativity. So having opposition, having challenge, having constantly trying to get my dad's approval, constantly trying to get him to say, well done, you know, things like that, um, were a huge motivating factor in, you know, in sort of fueling me to to just keep keep going. So, what was the journey between the sixteen year old listening to uh, sympathy, sympathy for the Devil on the Car Radio to before you then launched the theater for the palm of the hand? What was the the journey in between? Where did you get to? Ooh. Well, I, you know, I was in a band um, at that time, uh, a grungy sort of uh, female-fronted Led Zeppelin meets ACDC kind of band, all original. You know, I wrote the songs and played lead guitar. Um, and then my my best friend sang a lot of them, but then I did harmonies and um, and we had a male bassist and drummer. Uh, and we had a lot of interest, you know, we had people wanting to give us management deals or little record deals. And, you know, I remember that age sort of really sitting down and thinking, wow, you know, this is obviously uh, very kind of encouraging or flattering um, and seems like it could be quite cushy. You know, obviously, as a 16 year old, the idea of, um, you know, having getting some money and all, all those things, it's, it's quite it's it's quite hard to say no uh and i i just remember having this moment of thinking well could i really imagine you know putting out these kind of songs for the next five years or 10 years 
you know, because they were very angsty. I mean, um, in the way <laughs> in the way that you would expect, you know, uh, the, the our songs troubled asylum, let it boil. Um, you know, it was really, really dire. Calm and peaceful <laughs> music. Yeah. And just I, the joy <laughs> just coming right off the guitar strings. Exactly. Um, and so I, I just had this feeling that, you know, it was a, a, a period that I was in at that time and it was authentic. God, it was it was very real and it wasn't, you know, put on in any way. Uh, but I wasn't necessarily going to be there for, you know, the five years, 10 years to come. So I, you know, we, I ended up, I ended up sort of turning down a, a lot of things, which I think other people may not have. Um, and, you know, and then I, I sort of ended up, you know, splitting with this friend and, and doing my own thing. And then having, you know, again, various producers, different people wanting to work with me, but then, oh, hey, instead of doing your acoustic music, can you sing over this electronic beat, you know? And I was like, well, yeah, that's just really not me at all. Um, or sitting in Simon Fuller's, you know, management um, office and seeing all these people that, again, I just couldn't relate to and th them wanting me to be on the books. And it just... I think it was a process of figuring out what I didn't want to do was base was, you know, 16 until, um, the Palm Top Theater. And that was really, really helpful. Cause again, it's like with opposition, it can make you stronger. Well, with, with things that don't feel right and being able to say no to them, even when all your friends would be like, why, you know, that would, you should totally take that. Um, it was, it was constantly kind of, reasserting that um you know the reason why I was doing it and the intention and the fact that it had to be right and it had to be you know on on my terms and it had to be my vision um and so yeah I think that was all sort of fuel and uh and food ahead of putting out the first record is there a a, a switch that flipped something that triggered you to say it is time because when you stepped out into the work i know you for it's all incredible unique tends to be a singular comment but it's incredibly unique right that it's it's really a road less traveled so is there something that made it the right time or something that tripped you into that process you mean the you mean the sort of beginning of that kind of thinking or yeah the, the fact that it sounds like you definitely had it was baking for a while thinking through the manifestation the physical manifestation of the digital yeah or the ritualized elements but was there something that made that the right time to head that direction yeah you know the right partners the right something that happened I mean I think it was just so before you know even before eight which was the first record 2012 um, I had done this EP, which I, you know, I rarely talk about, which, you know, was me. It was me as you know it. And um, it was 2010 and I released it as a, you know, as this little app with visuals and, you know, obviously the, the songs and the liner notes. So that was almost like a precursor to eight that had, again, it was the seed of that thinking there has to be another way of releasing music. Um, and for me, it was just the most obvious thing. You know, when I 
when I had eight, you know, the tracks for eight ready and I, and it was, you know, going to come out because I'd sat on it for a while and I was like, no, I want to get this out. Um, and obviously, for, you know, it was going to be a record because it was always going to be a record and it would be a lyric book. So it would be those, you know, old school formats and then it would be, and it would be on iTunes and all of that. But I just couldn't get over that, you know, there wasn't something that was um, combining digital and physical. And it just felt like it was the most obvious thing to, you know, find a way of presenting it in this, in a, in a kind of old school way, but that also was totally different and totally innovative and, you know, giving it this twist that no one had experienced before. And and I remember thinking at the time, well, this is what everyone's going to do. Like, it's so obvious that we've we've kind of moved to these polar opposites and there's nothing in between and there's nothing that's bridging, you know, the digital and physical. Um, so that's got to be the most logical place to go as an artist. And, you know, it's funny because obviously, you know, I, I look back and I'm like, wow, I, yeah, I was convinced that it was just the most... Um, it was just the most common thinking, but, you know, I see now maybe it wasn't. Um, so I think that it, you know, like some of those great ideas, and I don't mean that in a, in a way of patting myself on the back. I mean it in the sense of us being uh, antennae, you know, that pick things up and things come through and, you know, um, we are conduits for bringing ideas into, into being. It just felt like it had to exist. It felt like there had to be these different ways of experiencing records, you know, that were captivating and new uh, and sort of exciting, but also very familiar and very um, intuitive and inclusive. And so, yeah, eight was really the beginning of, of that in terms of that kind of proof of concept, I think. So then when you came out then with your next piece of work, this is where it's frustrating to have it this that we're talking about things to go with audio to describe what you do in audio is interesting, right? Because it's like trying to, trying to physically, I almost want to gesture <laughs> when talking about things you built and made. So when you, when you started looking at sort of the, the way to artifact and ritualize the work, what was the sort of series that you stepped out on that people can go look for now? Ooh, how do you mean? So, so when you started looking at ways to then have accompanying physical artifacting, can you describe where you went from there? Because it, again, it'd be great to show people the physical right now, but they get to hear about it. Oh, I see. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So then turning turning it into a a, a metaphorical viewmaster. Yeah. You know how do you how how did you think about it and how did you do the work? Well, yeah. I mean, so so the first one, the first album. Um, was literally turning your phone into a mini theater for the palm of the hand, uh, which looked very much like a you know an eighties view master where you could watch the record play uh, in this three d sort of holographic way. Um, the second record was, uh, you know, a deck of cards, an album as a deck of cards, and it looked a bit like a cassette tape. So you could open it up and you had a series of, of cards corresponding to each song off the album with the lyrics and, and the artwork and the liner notes. And you would tap that card to your phone and via an invisible chip, it would instantly bring up 
the song, the music video, all of that content. Uh, but again, it looked like it was a, a cassette tape. It came in this very nostalgic sort of form. Um, and then the other part of that, you know, reimagining the album jacket, which again was a big love of mine, you know, the 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 ability for the jacket to tell a story. Uh, and again, those got reduced to, you know, thumbnail size. So um, the, as a sort of counterpart to uh, the deck of cards, um, the album was, was released as this uh, one-off album jacket that was cut by the tailor who dressed uh, Bowie Hendrix and Jagger out of fabric woven with my music that was recorded in the room where McCartney wrote Ellen, Eleanor Rigby and Hendrix wrote The Wind Cries Mary as this sort of uh, centerpiece. But, you know, really this way of of rethinking the album jacket and and it telling these multiple... As a physical, wearable, gorgeous, glorious physical jacket. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, and I just loved the fact that it it had all these threads, uh, symbolically but also literally, that were were telling the story of the room of this incredible flat with so much musical history and this tailor who had dressed so many again so many of my favorite musicians and who lived in this flat, and then obviously of this record and it was all woven together and you could you know tap your phone onto the jacket to hear the music that was woven into it but actually that was the least interesting part for me um and then the the third record was you know an anti-stream from the quietest room on earth as a physical record stream uh playing 24 hours for a week on repeat and people could log in you know via the 360 cameras it was the first live 360 video and they could explore that space they couldn't shuffle um, yeah, they couldn't fast forward, you know, wherever the the record was, that's what they were hearing. But then using live animations, the lyrics would be streaming out of the vinyl, the artwork would be surrounding you and taking you into the visual landscape of each track as it was playing in real time. So you were sort of in this modern day Fantasia experience. And, um, and it really did feel like, you know, all of the stuff that we were missing from streaming, I was, you know, I was trying to bring back into into the equation in this fashion that felt, you know, seamless. So uh, that was raw space. And then I, after that, did a, a sort of space broadcast using the Homdel horn antenna um, with the Nobel Prize winning scientist who had used the horn to pick up cosmic microwave radiation and prove the theory of the Big Bang. And he and I did a a beam, a space beam of raw space, um, you know, as just a, a nice way to finish that story. Um, you know, and then I, I was very sort of fortunate to be able to present these designs, which by that point also included a space chamber, you know, so I'd, I'd figured out a way of representing raw space in a fashion where people didn't have to use VR headsets because from almost from the get-go, like I had no interest in them, but I love the idea of sort of taking people back into that world. And so using a coin-operated viewport, the kind that you would look out to see um, in this mylar-wrapped space chamber, people were able to watch the record come to life with the animations and the artwork. And, and it was wonderful because everyone from a grandparent to a kid knew how to use, you know, the old viewport. Um, so I, yeah, I presented uh, all these designs that I'd come up with in a, 
in a solo exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, working with the Bowie curatorial team, and uh, that was, you know, without a doubt, one of one of my life highlights. And we'll have show note links to all of this because it, this is such a visual and textural motif that it's hard to even describe it in the time we've got here. So, um, and very visual. So, I'm gonna definitely be sharing this stuff in the links. But a lot of this isn't necessarily the traditional scale models, right? So in many ways, you know, digital music has become this music as water motif where it's just flowing everywhere and some efforts to maybe make VIP experiences or high-priced experiences that still had some scale and intimacy, but you're instead creating story art that is physical and spatial and all of this, but not really looking at scale by its design because it sounds like... These are very boutique, intimate story conversations. I think they are. I mean, I've, you know, I had offers um, to, <laughs> you know, to roll out some of these designs or formats at points in my life. And I had no desire because it's, this was my curiosity, you know, my exploration and, it was never about creating one definitive design that was suddenly going to be the way everyone listened to music. I mean, raw space really was the most complete um, and actually required the least in terms of any, you know, you didn't need anything to be able to enter into it. Um, but no, it was it was just about me exploring what I thought was interesting and, and where I thought we could be looking as artists and hoping that, you know, me doing whatever I'm doing was also inspiring other people to think, oh, yeah, I can go and do something different as well. Um, so the idea of sort of figuring out one, you know, perfect, you know, format that then could be commercialized was just so not interesting. I mean, I'm looking at a beautiful photo of Leonard Cohen um, in, in the room that I'm sitting in. And there was a conversation at one point around um, him using, you know, or adopting my deck of cards as a way of releasing, I think it was, uh, you want it darker. And that, that's a whole other thing, because he's a, a huge inspiration and um, muse or, or not muse, but, you know, hero, I don't really like that word, but he's someone, you know, I'm deeply inspired by and moved by. And, um, that would have felt very right, you know, and it would have been another artist that you love that, um, that is sort of, you know, using something you've created and that's wonderful. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I think it was, I think it was, it's always been about the exploration. It's never been about arriving at a goal, you know, a, a specific place of saying, yay, <laughs> figured that out. I don't need to do <laughs> I'm anything. Here, I've made it. <laughs> I've sold it at scale. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but impact is not unimportant. So what did you find that having the Victorian Albert uh, celebration of your work, did that have impact of doors opening? or of inspiring other creators, or did something come of that? Or how has that been as a metric and milestone and catalyst in your life? Well, metric, you know, metrics in, when, in many ways I'm not interested in. Milestone, it was huge. And um, and I think, you know, have, being able to 
uh, to say it, but actually to know it, you know, to be able, to, being able to know that you've had a, a solo exhibition um, and really the, you know, the last singer-songwriter before me to be exhibited there w- was Bowie. And again, another huge inspiration for me. So um, that just meant that was sort of worth its weight in gold. And and that was something that um, I think, you know, presenting your work where you're showing this this continuation of thought and while all the outputs might be different, there's a, you know, a core intention that is informing each one of them. So they're all actually very connected. Seeing, you know, it ended up being hundreds of thousands, you know, 150,000 people who came through there um, during the time that the show was on. And I was there every day. I was, you know, arriving from when the doors opened and leaving when the doors closed. And uh, the people at the museum couldn't, they just, they couldn't really figure it out because they're like, well, we've never had an artist who's just wanted to be here all the time, you know, that the show is on. And for me, I thought, well, why not? Why wouldn't you? Isn't this the reason that you're doing, you know, the work that you're doing? And I got so much out of seeing people's reactions and seeing the variety of people that were coming through, you know, schools, you know, groups from other countries, um, engineers, you know, scientists, um, design students, you know, just all these different types of people. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was exhausting, but it was amazing. And so I think that, uh, that, you know, the, the kind of magnitude of that and actually knowing that every person that went into that space chamber, because it, it was so kind of magical and so immersive and, you know, people would go in and then they'd queue up again to go in again. And, um, you know, we'd done a beta of it at the LA Times, which I think maybe you, you were at and might have, you know, seen. But this was, you know, the Space Chamber 2.0 and it was so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And knowing that that would have imprinted, you know, knowing that in 10 years time, um, a lot of people would be able to remember that. Uh, oh, I went into this weird, you know, NASA Mylar wrapped room and heard this record and it watched all these visuals that were real time. And, um, you know, I think that was a a, a great sense of of achievement, sort of feeling like I created something that um, would have gone in deep. And that was after you had created something else that had gone in deep with your dementia work. Can you talk about that journey because it is both different and possibly interwoven yeah i mean it's it's as if i don't have enough <laughs> enough weird <laughs> well, stuff well i'm thinking about the other about. things all the you know the la times festival of books curation all the other things the dub uh, the uh, the dub lab work you're doing that you've you've got so many stuff you're going on so but but that preceded it as well though didn't it that it you had did. been looking to bring um, uh, music is almost time travel or recall. Yeah, I mean, so the Music Dementia Project, um, which really began in 2014, uh, and it began with family members, you know, having having dementia, and I'd got very 
interested in the work of Oliver Sacks and everything that he'd done to look at music for autism, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, like every neurological condition. And he was able to show that music was a, a tonic, you know, a way in when nothing else could penetrate. And so I, you know, I was so deeply moved by um, how much he had contributed and, and how much he'd illuminated and then finding out that I had family members with with you know Alzheimer's and dementia, um, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll take my guitar and and see if you know playing a few songs might help. And um, didn't really have any expectations. And from that, um, and particularly one performance in the north of Portugal, which was meant to just be to my father-in-law, but ended up being to the whole ward of you know 100 200 people living with dementia and i was thinking okay i'm i'm singing songs that are in another language that you know are new that don't in any way trigger wouldn't would not trigger a memory these are not familiar songs um this is probably at best gonna create a nice ambience and watching people during that performance waking up singing along clapping talking to one another and feeling just as if you're in a, a regular performance, you know, and then you think, oh, I'm in a, of course, I'm in a care home. And not to, not to say that isn't a regular performance, but, you know, it was such an animated group and suddenly, you know, you remember. Um, and at the end of the performance, the director of the home came up and said, you know, in the 10 years I've been here, that's the best I've ever seen everyone. And that was really the catalyst um, behind me feeling like I had to go further and keep pulling this thread and just see what unfolded. And so I began a, a music dementia research project back in the UK and went into care homes all across the UK and played a set of original songs. And uh, the residents were monitored during the performance, but also after in the, in the weeks following, listening to the same songs on headsets. And, um, you know, we saw a huge improvement in memory, communication. Um, you know, I saw people who were catatonic get up and dance, people who were nonverbal singing along to these songs they'd never heard. And it was so powerful. And it was uh, just such a huge reminder of how deep music really goes and how we still know so little about it. Um, and it was also really a reminder of doing it, you know, of why we do these things with the highest integrity and we try and make the best art possible um, because it's so powerful and it's so core to our humanity. Um, so from that, you know, this uh, charity was formed out of the work that I'd done, Music for Dementia 2020, which is now actively getting music in all care homes in the UK by the end of um, next year, and I, you know, recently gave a a TED Med uh, TED Med talk about, you know, obviously this subject specifically, but just in general, you know, where we are today, what we've what we've lost along the way with the rise of technology, and how it's fast tracked so much of what it means to be human, but often without the true cost or value reflected in the process, and when you see how powerful music is even when you remove the memory component you know you have the utmost respect for the power of art and you just you know you just realize that um we as human beings have to 
you know, we have to keep making the best art possible and um, not just thinking about, you know, today and how much gratification we're getting today, but, you know, the long term. Um, and also, I think, as just general people on this planet, you know, we are living on a planet with finite resources and technology is never going to be able to create, you know, additional re resources for us to um, pillage. And um, so I think, yeah, I, I guess I, I just feel like it's very important to remember the things that keep us human and art and nature um, are really two of the core things that remind us of our humanity. So earlier in our conversation, we talked about the time that you spent early in your life figuring out what you didn't want to do. Then we've spent time talking about a fraction <laughs> of the many things you have done. How do you decide as both a creator and as an independent businesswoman what projects to pursue? Well, it doesn't even really feel like a decision. Um, I mean, which I know sounds kind of esoteric, but it it feels like I have had the same thing on repeat. You know, I've had this record on repeat in my brain, which is just how do we make deeper, more ceremonial experiences around music and art in general um, in this increasingly digital world. And that just it keeps on going round and round and round. And then wherever I see a, not an opportunity, but wherever I see something that strikes, you know, my um, strikes a chord or captures my imagination um, or inspires me like a, a, a room or a learning about someone, an invention or seeing, you know, graphs um, of CO2 in the atmosphere or whatever it is, it can be anything. And then I think, okay, how do I weave, how do I weave this story um, together? And so I think because the idea is always the same or the intention is always the same, then the way that you do it, it just is the specific tools or the or the right kind of um, contextual material that's going to tell that story best um, and so it never really feels like a decision it just feels like the next logical step like oh yeah this is this has to exist I think it's when I get the feeling that something has to exist or that it already does um, and I know that it you know I see it in my mind's eye and I it's almost as if it's already there. Um, and then I just know that it's going to come together. And then I guess, you know, with the the few times that it's been um, like the postcards project, you know, um, or, or even the environmental project um, with that, because it really is, you know, Mark and I have been doing the postcards project together. It was again, um, and it's different from my main work because it's not related to an album or related to you know representing -re art or music um, but I had spent most of my time in lockdown writing letters just as a way of staying sane and that had brought me so much joy and you know reminded me again of you know physical communication over you know social media and again all, all, all the stuff that we've talked about 
Um, and hearing that he had made postcards since the 60s and knowing that we wanted to do a collaboration together, when USPS was suddenly under attack and we all depended on it for our, you know, our ability to vote, um, again, it just felt like that had to, you know, kind of had to exist. We had to, uh, it would be wonderful to give people an outlet, a creative outlet, but to something that supported USPS and uh, our right to vote ahead of the election, um, but also that sort of celebrated this lost art that so many of us really love, but we've forgotten about. Um, so I think a lot of my work is about reminding people of these endangered experiences, these things that keep us alive inside that might have got lost along the way um, and that, you know, we should reclaim because they, they're they simple things, but they bring us so much joy. So you've shared a lot of your, your great projects. We'll have a lot in the show notes. If someone wants to reach out to you, is there a way that they can connect? And is there anything you are looking for that you'd like to someone to reach out for you about? Well, um, my name, B-E-A-T-I-E-W-O-L-F-E, which is uh, my real name. Yeah, I mean, you can find whether it's website or, you know, as much as um, I don't uh, love social media, but, you know, I am, you can find me on various uh, platforms. Uh, but yeah, I would, I'd just say my website and, um, or, you know, the the greater interweb. Um, and I think, is there anything I would like people to send in? Anything that you want to catalyze or connect on? Um, Other than people to find your great work. Yeah, I mean, it's, no, I, I think, uh, I think it's not even about, you know, pushing my work on people. If there's stuff that um, strikes a chord and uh, obviously, you know, they can go check it out. Um, if there are any things, you know, that uh, whether it's in the music dementia space or the environmental project, you know, things that I think are, are kind of, um, you know, more about service in some ways or just, yeah, just giving, giving back. Um, obviously if people have, you know, want to contribute or get involved, that's always wonderful. Um, but otherwise, no, I just think, you know, uh, yeah, I think let, let people find or enjoy whatever, um, strikes a, a chord. And there's lots of chords to strike. So BD, thank you for joining us today. And I'm always excited about seeing your next adventures. Nice, Gigi. Thanks so much for, for chatting with me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with BD Wolf. Next week on Tuesday, we'll be doing the first segment of our Creative Careers Next Career.me program. So you can get snippets every Tuesday and then enjoy our wonderful interviews each Thursday. Next Thursday, we'll have David Hernandez and you'll hear about his self-made enterprise to be channels and technology and music to expand what people can be doing across their music careers. But for now, join us at nextcareer.me. Come join us at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com. And we'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, 
where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024. <music>